It's great to be back with you again to continue a two-part series that we started last week. I hope you were blessed by that and challenged by that. I appreciated a lot of the, the comments I got after the, uh, the sermon, uh, and uh, I hope to continue to dig a little deeper into that same passage this week. This week is a continuation of the passage we uh, discussed last week. We talked about Acts chapter 10. This week we're going to be continuing in Acts chapter 11. So follow me as I read, as I start Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your entire house. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. So we turn back to the story of Peter. It reminds me of a, a quote I heard from Mark Twain. He once said this, A rumor can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting its shoes on. Peter's kind of dealing with this high-speed bad news circuit that we're familiar with. Not that it was bad news, but to the people in Jerusalem, they were unhappy about this, right? So Peter's now dealing with a report that has reached the Jerusalem church before he had, and he's forced to account for his actions. He has to face the music. You went to the uncircumcised and ate with them, they said, accusingly. And his defense, which we're concerned about, concerns what the book of Acts calls the Gentile controversy. And we looked at that a little bit last week. The challenge to the early church, which Peter and everybody was trying to sort out, was how do we proceed with global missions, as Jesus promised they would, while still under the constraints of the old covenant law, and while the Gentiles are still unclean? How do we do it? Jesus said we're going to, but how is that going to happen? You see, Peter and the people in Jerusalem church were an observant, was an observant Jew, an apostle of Jesus, and a leader of the new church in Jerusalem. 
He had been charged with spreading the good news of Jesus' life, his ministry, and resurrection to the whole world. However, up until this point, we haven't seen any movement of the apostles beyond Judea or Samaria. They were still operating under the assumption that the cultural distinctives of Judaism were still to be observed. They couldn't at this point imagine how they would practically mount a global mission. How do you become a missionary to the world if you can't even share a meal or go into the house of a foreigner? How do you do it? This is a question that perplexed them. But Jesus comes to them in their confusion. He perceives this hesitation, and he intervenes to challenge the dynamic between the Jew and the Gentile. We talked about this last week. He does this in two ways. In review, Jesus informs Peter that from now on, Gentiles are clean. That was easy. He just declares it. (laughs) Done. God says it. It's true, right? He created the whole unclean, clean thing in the beginning with, so if he he says it's true, it's true. One hurdle down. Easy enough. The second is that he cancels in his own body the Mosaic law, the whole system, in order to remove the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Second hurdle down. (laughs) Jesus does it all. And he does this so that now whoever believes in Jesus, whether from Jews or Gentiles, without any distinction, partiality or favoritism, through faith alone, not by works, they can be included into the new people that God is creating, which we read last week in Ephesians 2. Paul calls this the one new man made out of the two. The one new man. Now, we might take for granted that there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in Christ, but this was not always understood. In fact, I would suggest that maybe even today it's poorly understood. We see in these passages, the ones we just read, how hard it was for Peter and the Jerusalem church to accept it. It required a revelation from God himself. This revelation from God wasn't just an afterthought, right? How do we solve this problem? Or a pragmatic band-aid for how to engage in this new frontier of global missions. This new combined community of Jews and Gentiles turns out to have much bigger implications than they ever imagined. And God was beginning to expand their minds on this point. Jesus sends Paul to them to set them straight. We read that in Galatians last week, didn't we? And Paul describes God's plan to create this new reconciled community in Christ this way. The mystery kept hidden for ages past. The mystery kept hidden for ages past. And you're thinking, well, what is so mysterious? You know, getting these two, you know, these two groups together. What, what am I missing something? Why don't, I, why don't I see this as big of a deal as Paul does? We have to continue to listen to them as it unfolds. Paul spills a lot of ink trying to explain this mystery. The new man, the mystery kept hidden for ages past. I think that once we understand it the way Paul would want us to, our reaction will be like those in the church in Jerusalem. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God. My prayer is that as we understand this, our objections will also be put to rest, and that we will glorify God. Minds blown, you know. That's the intention. Let's read how Paul explains this a little bit. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. You can read with me. This is Paul trying to explain this concept. He says to the church, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Wow. <laughs> the church, <clears throat> the manifold wisdom of God. The church assembled, Jew and Gentile, the new man. Paul says is the expression of the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God. What does this mean, the manifold wisdom of God? It means that God's very nature and his intentions for all of creation are tied up in the formation of this new group, the body of Christ. Think these little gatherings we do every Lord's Day are quaint little self-help meetings? Better think again. When we meet to honor Jesus, to reaffirm our gratitude and our allegiance, to reconcile our offenses with each other, and to share this table. The enemy of God's people, Satan himself, and all his deputies shudder in fear. It's an act of defiance. It is a constant reminder that they have lost. There's a reason we call this the Lord's Day. It's the day he declared victory over them. And we assemble to announce that every Sunday. The assembling of the church is a sign of judgment to spiritual powers. Satan, the former prince of the world, who would keep us divided and at enmity with each other, is losing his captives. No longer slaves to fear and death. When we take this communion, we say with one voice, we choose life. This life comes to us in an unexpected way. It comes by being united with Christ by the Holy Spirit, the scripture says. See, Christ is the vine. He says it himself, doesn't he? And we are his branches. Any branch that abides in him bears much fruit. The branches don't support the vine. The vine supports the branches. Paul puts it another way, which helps us see this lesson that we're talking about today a little more clearly. Jesus is not only referred to as the vine. He's also referred to as the cultivated olive tree. Now, we don't really have olive trees around here so much, but in the Middle East, that was a very common tree, which used to harvest olives for olive oil. Roman Empire used that a lot. But the cultivated olive tree... Olive trees don't grow very well in the wild. They don't bear much fruit. Only cultivated do they bear fruit. And so God uses the picture of the cultivated olive tree as a picture for ancient Israel. And it's a picture that's one of the oldest in Israel's traditions. In passages such as Jeremiah 11 and others, God always told Israel, you are like an olive tree that I planted in my garden. I watered you. 
I tended you, I pruned you, and I waited for a harvest. But the harvest never came. So the tree was cut down. As John the Baptist warned them in his day, he said, see, the ax is already at the foot of the tree, isn't it? Can't you see it? Jesus, in a similar way in his ministry, looked for fruit on the fig tree, and finding none, he cursed it, saying, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. The tree, representing the commonwealth of Israel, was cut down, and all seemed lost. What was once a glorious tree with great promise was now reduced to a stump. All hope was gone. But if you examine that stump closely, a small shoot is found emerging from it, growing to become a new trunk of that old tree. That small shoot was the one member of Israel whose life was sinless and indestructible. And who was that? Jesus. What did the prophets call him? The root and the shoot of Jesse. He is at the same time the root of that stump and the new trunk. Jesus had passed the test in the wilderness where the nation of Israel had failed. He would succeed, earning the right to become the sole representative of the nation before God, whose righteousness would make him an acceptable sacrifice and a substitute for all the people. Amazing. After his victory on the cross and over the grave, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and was given authority to establish a new covenant in his own blood. He could have called his new covenant community whatever he wanted. He was the author of it. And what does he call it? He calls it Israel. The reason why is that that stump never died at its root, even though all the branches were cut off, because he was always at its root in the first place. And God's covenant faithfulness to the patriarchs still stands to this day. So not only does the root claim the title of Israel for himself, he is determined to reconstitute that tree. New branches. How does he do this? Jesus appoints 12 apostles, just like the heads of the 12 tribes, to go out into the garden and to start collecting branches off the ground, to graft them again into the tree, to reconstitute the tribes of Israel. Some of the branches are those that were cut off from the original tree, but surprisingly, others are from wild olive trees, and they're brought in. All these branches are brought back to the master gardener of that tree, and the gardener, with great care and precision, grafts the natural branches as well as the wild branches back in to receive the nourishing sap from the trunk. This new reconstituted tree, called Israel, is the body of Christ the people of God, the one new man. So, now that Jesus is the sole heir of the name Israel, what happens to old Israel, Israel in the flesh? That's a natural question in which Paul addresses in the book of Romans. Well, they're still out there, aren't they? And they are called by Paul in Galatians 4, Israel according to the flesh, those who have not followed Jesus yet. And in relation to the law, he says they're still in slavery at Sinai. They still think they're going to work it out. He calls them my beloved, beloved kinsmen. Has all hope been lost for them, as many in Paul's day imagined? No, it has not. 
On behalf of God's love for the patriarchs, he has made a space for a remnant of them to be grafted into the tree, that they too might be called Israel again. They have been broken off because of their unbelief, but God will yet call a remnant of them to Christ. This is guaranteed by Scripture. So as we read the New Testament Scriptures, we must keep this adjustment in terms of mind. When we read the word Israel, when Peter, Paul, and John use the term Israel or Jew in Galatians or Revelation, we must always look at the context and ask, to which Israel of the two Israels are we referring? Sometimes that might mean just the physical descendants of the ancient tribes. And other times it may mean the one new man, the olive tree, the body of Christ. For example, Paul gives instructions to the readers of Romans of how he intends to use the term. Have you read Romans? A little instruction manual at the beginning. Paul says this, as you read my letter, Romans 2, 28, when I say Jew, I mean this, a man is not a Jew if he is merely one outwardly. Paul's talking about circumcision of the heart. And again, in Romans 9, he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, meaning they're not part of the new man yet. You see? Another great passage to illustrate this point is Romans chapter 11, from which we get Paul's olive tree analogy in the first place. Follow me as I read. Romans chapter 11, verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you, Gentiles. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if they were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this verse, we have a reference to both Israels. I don't know if you picked up on it. It says this, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's natural Israel, Israel in the flesh until the fullness of the Gentiles, the wild branches, has come in. You see how he's combining the two? Natural branches and wild branches. What does Paul say? In this way, all Israel will be saved. A combination of Jews and Gentiles, that new thing called Israel, all of it will be saved. Jesus has promised, I will not lose all of the Father has given me. That will come true. And that new body called Israel will be saved, all of them. For most of us here who are Gentiles, there is a reason for rejoicing in this. We were once strangers to the covenants and promises of God, but we've now been drawn near by the blood of Christ. We are now brothers and sisters together with ethnic Jews who believe in Jesus. Together and only in Jesus can any of us lay claim to the title or promise of the name Israel or the patriarchs. It's a gift to us. So in our passage, if the combination of Jew and Gentile, which Peter and the church of Jerusalem are struggling with, is the first unexpected surprise in the New Testament, perhaps the bigger surprise to the New Covenant church is this, the introduction of the Holy Spirit into their group. 
Imagine that. You're dealing with how do we get the, uh, the ethnic thing squared away, and God says, here, just to make it more complex, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's something brand new in the world. Now let's see what you do. The Spirit of God. Could God just have forgiven their sins and left them without the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I suppose he could. So why did he give it then? For what purpose would God pour out his Spirit to this fledgling church? We have to understand and think like the prophets of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit coming is a whole new step in redemptive history, which the prophets only imagined and pictured in their prophecies. And many of the Jewish prophets of the Old Testament, including Joel 2 and Isaiah 65, some of the passage with which we're familiar, they foretold the pouring out of the Spirit for the renewal of the earth. But they have viewed that event happening only at the end of time, at the end of the age. When he would come and he would refresh the hearts of people to love God's commands, there would be a complete reversal of the curse. Lions would lay down with lambs. Mortal enemies would live at peace with each other. Swords would be beaten into plowshares and no longer would they learn war anymore. This is the picture of something that would happen in their minds at the end of the age. The big surprise, ready, in redemptive history is that the Holy Spirit, who was foresold to be present at the end of the age, has made his appearance in the middle of the age. Not expected. Breaking the paradigm. Completely shattering the paradigm of the Old Covenant Jew. The resurrection of Jesus was also a surprise. The Jews knew the resurrection was supposed to happen at the end of the age. And here you have one man resurrecting right in the middle of history. It messes everything up. Something different is happening than what they're expecting. Jesus resurrects, that's something supposed to happen at the end of the age, and the Holy Spirit is poured out, something that's supposed to happen at the end of the age is happening right now in our midst. What do we do with this, this amazing thing? The middle of history, the times that we're living in, right in the middle of the old age, the new age has begun. The Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of Christ, or sometimes the Spirit of Sonship. Jesus himself is called the firstborn in Greek, the word prototokos. It's a great word. A title given to the heir of a family. Even though he was born late in Israel's history, he is reckoned as the elder brother, isn't he? The firstborn. Ancient Israel under the law is described by Paul as school-aged children under a tutor. New covenant Israel, not under the law anymore, but under the Spirit of Christ are pictured in the New Testament as adult heirs, not children anymore. I know the women understand this pretty clearly from the Galatians Bible study. They've been studying this in great detail. The New Covenant Israel are pictured as sons, which means adult heirs. There's a difference here. So Old Testament Israel and New Covenant Israel have a different relationship to God now. One is as a fully grown son. In Old Testament Israel, they bore the name of God and followed his commands, but had real, no real participation with God's own secret counsel. They followed the laws and so forth. They had Moses as their tutor. As Paul says in Galatians 4, as long as the heir is a minor, he has no advantage over the servant until the, of the house until he comes of age. No advantage. You know, when I was a minor, Saturday was a work day around our house. I don't know how it is around your house. But we didn't sleep in and we made no plans to play Star Wars with our friends. And 
spend any time on the block riding bikes and skidding out and all that stuff we used to do. <clears throat> My brother and I are awoken by the dulcet tones of mother singing some non-distinct Christian march song uh, involving rising and shining and giving God the glory, glory, something like this. You know that song. All right. <clears throat> we were fed a soldier's breakfast and always had a fistful of vitamins, I recall. At age seven, I probably had more B12 than any pregnant woman. Anyway, Dad set the agenda in the yard. We had about 12 trees in the yard, and in those days, we were about hip deep in leaves by this time of year. Raking was usually the order of the day, but sometimes we dug holes too. I, I'm not sure why, I, but we, we dug holes. By the time I was 12, my Saturdays didn't look much different. The only difference is that no one woke me up. I made my own healthy breakfast. I made myself a to-do list, which always started with cut down tree. <laughs> it's true. I had taken responsibility for the yard, the garden. If you visit my parents' house today, you will see artifacts of my handiwork, monuments to uncoerced labor, and creativity poured into that yard. My point is, as a child, we follow instructions. We don't set the agenda. When we come of age, we take charge of the household, as if it's ours, and we're entrusted with writing the next chapter of the story. Heirs coming of age. The receiving of the Spirit, starting at Pentecost, right through to our text, the Gentiles, was humanity's coming of age. The scriptures confirm in Hebrews 2. Jesus is the pioneer of our faith, and he has brought many sons to glory. Many sons. Not children, sons. Read Romans 8 with me. This is Paul. He says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For he did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. 
Remember the authority that God gave Adam, the first man originally, before he fell? He had dominion over all creatures. In Genesis 2, this little verse, sublime, says this. God brought before the man all the animals. And listen to this. Whatever the man called them, that they were called. Seems simple. We hear it as a kid's story. That's a statement of authority there. That's a statement of dominion. Whatever you call them, that they're called, period. Delegated authority. Adam was calling the shots, and he was authorized to do it. This is not a challenge to God's authority, but the proper application of his delegated rule to man. On Pentecost, those on whom the Spirit fell, in a sense, grew up in an instant because they received that spirit of sonship. In this, the lost dominion of Adam was restored. Listen how crazy our position is now in the Spirit. And how does it sound like Adam? Listen to this verse. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.3. The man with the Spirit makes judgments about all things and is judged by no man. What? Teflon. That's amazing. I don't know if you realize that's what's happening. We are heirs, grown-up sons, daughters, of age, now living with God's own spirit, the spirit of sonship. And Paul says, you make judgments about all things. You call the shots, right? And no one can judge you about it because you're doing my business. (laughs) Pretty amazing. That person that Paul's describing doesn't sound like a person under a code expressed in ordinances, does it? Does that sound like a child under a tutor? No way. This is new covenant language, and we have to begin getting used to it. This remains unexplored in many churches. Think of the distinction between old Israel and new Israel in this way. If God had a contractor's truck in the Old Testament, it might read on the side, the God company, always working. Whatever. In the New Covenant, that same truck might read this God and Sons, working toward the renewal of all things. The heirs have grown up and joined the family business. We are apprenticing under Jesus and entrusted with running the family business. Remember Jesus' words in John 14 to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And as the Father has sent me, so send I you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. These are not things he could say to Israel under the law. By fulfilling the old covenant, Jesus earned the right to become the king of the high priest, all based on the conditions set in Exodus chapter 20. The community that finds themselves grafted into him also shares in his ministry. We are a kingdom of priests, taking responsibility for executing the kingdom's initiatives creatively, with authority. We were made in God's image, and just like him, we were meant to apply ourselves to the creative and restorative work in the world tending this garden. 
Our citizenship is in heaven. And the reason we've been given God's spirit while we're still here in this age, this old age, is to be the ambassadors of heaven and heralds of the age to come. Heralds of the age to come. How does the Christian church determine its ethics in this age? If we're heralds of the age to come, still living the old age, how do we, how do we act? Do we simply choose the options we're handed in this fallen world? No, we don't. Rather, by reflecting on the realities of the age to come, as expressed in Scripture and communicated by the Spirit, we can begin to think Christianly, thinking in the Spirit, reasoning in the Spirit. How is the age to come, the new earth, right, the resurrection, how is that described in Scripture? You ever take some time to read that in the prophets? Let's examine a few here, just to see how this would work out as we thought about it. In the age to come, it says there's no sickness there. You're all familiar with this. So what do we do now in light of that? We engage in the ministry of healing now. And we build hospitals and things like that. Ever wonder why so many hospitals have church names? I love the hospital in my old neighborhood in New York City, New York Presbyterian Hospital. There's a huge sign over the entrance in stone, it says, in big letters. From the most high cometh healing. Now when you look down, the place is abuzz with activity. Is there labor, a denial that healing comes from God? Or an affirmation that healing is his priority and so it should be ours too? How else is the age to come described? Isaiah continues, The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so the church teaches. We start schools and universities to bring knowledge of God, knowledge of the scriptures, and knowledge about his good world. This was the reason Harvard and Princeton were started, and I suspect that they still exist from the otherworldly momentum they had at their start. In the age to come, there's no war. So the church beats its swords into plowshares now and shows the world what it means to be a peacemaker. While the world tears itself apart, we try to put it back together. I challenge the small groups to read the scriptures and see how the new age, the new earth is described and try to discern what some of our ethics should be in this age. It's a good exercise, healthy exercise. This is serious work requiring serious attention, sacrificing creativity. 1 Corinthians 2.15, if Paul felt you weren't taking it seriously enough, he would often tell the churches things like this. I just love this. Paul says, you're not taking this seriously enough. He says this, you will judge the angels. <laughs> How much more the matters of this life? They're like, whoa, yeah, we... We lost perspective. We lost perspective. Do you realize that you're being prepared by the Holy Spirit, practicing in this time, the judgments you're making every day, reconciling in the community, because you will be the judges of the angels someday? Do you realize that? Practice now. <laughs> That's the point. Think big. Don't think small. Don't be petty. You will judge the angels someday. Amazing. 
Living life by the Spirit lets us begin to cultivate the age to come in advance. Sometimes we call this storing up treasures in heaven. Right? That's another way to describe it. Hebrews 6 tells us that the powers of the age to come are given to the church. Powers of the age to come. The power of the age to come allows us to live out the initiatives of that time now. And it fills our hearts with hope to be heralded in vanguards of that time. Vanguards of that time. The new man or humanity renewed in Christ that we talked about are the people God is preparing to inherit the age to come. The meek will inherit the earth. The work we do now reflects the age to come will be preserved and honored at the resurrection. All the work done in the spirit now will be memorialized in that time. I suspect we will still enjoy Handel's Messiah in that time. But hopefully not until after Thanksgiving, you know. <laughs> I can't even imagine how glorious the widow's might monument will be. Or hearing bedtime stories of the martyrs, read by the martyrs. It's going to be a beautiful world to live, to work, to play, and to worship in. The saints in heaven now inquire of the Lord every day, how much longer? And his answer, just a little while longer. A little while. I find that comforting. Come, Lord Jesus. Just like Peter had to get in step with the gospel by getting on board with God's plan, we also need to learn and reflect on what God, God's plan is for this world in this time, in this age. If we don't know what his plan is, how can we get in step? We're not just waiting around to go to heaven one day. And even if we died now and went to heaven, we wouldn't be there for long because before you knew it, the resurrection and the restoration of all things would be at hand. Right? Jesus says not long, right? We get to resume the work we started now, but this time without the thorns and the thistles. And that annoying coworker, you know. If you're a believer here today, perhaps some of the things we've spoken of today are too big and too glorious to contemplate. I hope they seem big. And if that's you, that's okay. You can still begin to get in step with the elementary things. Have you not been baptized? Be baptized. Obey Jesus. It's a simple command he's given. If you've not been participating in the life of the church, trust God's plan and be present. And you might just see the manifold wisdom of God unfold through the power of the Spirit. Pray that God would give a revelation to our church so that we can rise up and be the ambassadors of the age to come that we are meant to be. And like Israel of old, we can take up that name Israel proudly and be a light, a beacon of hope, not just for this world, but for the world to come. Maybe you're here today and as you hear these words about Jesus and his great plans, you're starting to believe that they are true. Not just because I said it, because the Spirit of God has revealed it to you. Do you sense that God is relentlessly pursuing you 
like he's pursued Cornelius in these stories, arranging for it, you finding yourself here today unexpectedly. To you I say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's room in the olive tree for all without partiality, no matter your background. Come all who are thirsty and drink freely from the river of the water of life, the spirit of the living God. Amen? Amen. Thanks, Mike. At this time, we're going to transition from...